0: I think we just have to look at at people's preferences by and large. You know, I'm not at the point where I think there should just be broad based access for psychedelics. You take it home and you do it themselves. I may get there, but I feel like it's just like a high risk unnecessary approach right now, given the stigmas that we're trying to overcome. But I'm also not of the view that you need to have a, you know, master's level or PhD level therapist take you through an experience. But it's kind of like the analogy I was thinking about as you we were kind of going through that is like rock climbing. It's like you don't need an engineer to help you like figure out a path to climb up the side of a, a cliff face probably a good idea, you know, an experienced engineer who knows, knows rock climbing, you're probably going to have the best and safest experience. But someone who's done that face a lot of times is probably going to offer a good and safe experience. Maybe not the best one, maybe not the therapeutic one, but a lot better than you're just trying to figure it out by yourself.
1: Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club Show. My guest today is Ronan Levy, and he's one of the founders of Field Trip Health in Toronto. The company's mission is to bring the world to life through psychedelics and psychedelic-enhanced psychotherapy. Especially the opening of ketamine clinics in the meantime in seven locations from Toronto to Amsterdam has made Field Trip Health last year to one of the most important forces in the field. And last year the company even went public. Ronan, a lawyer by training, is also a partner at GrassFed Ventures, a venture capital and advisory firm focused on the cannabis and biotech industries, and is chief strategy officer and member of the board of directors for Trade Biosciences Inc., a leading biotech company in the hemp and cannabis industry. It was really fun to have Ronan on the show again and catch up also because the world of psychedelics is changing every day. This time, next to ketamine, we talk about if ketamine clinics should look like Soho House. If there's something like an agnostic molecule, we talk Demi Levato's video Dancing with the Devil, where she shows herself overdosing and addressing her addiction. We talk about the exact meaning of California sober an approach to recovery that includes drinking alcohol and smoking cannabis in moderation. And we discuss if biotech or the recreational side of psychedelics will win the race. So enjoy the show with Ronan and the birds singing in the background while we are talking. I'm very excited to have Ronan Levi is the pronunciation, right?
0: Yeah, I, I say, I say Levi, um, Levy? which confuses a okay. lot of people, but, uh, okay. I, I don't correct people too often unless they ask. So it's all good.
1: Okay. So you're, you're on the show the second time. And I remember last year around a similar time, I think you were on. And I think the whole COVID situation had just started. And yeah. you were, you were actually, um, sitting on your ping pong table like when we were recording. That's right. Yeah. I remember
0: that. Fortunately, my internet has gotten slightly better since then, so it shouldn't be as challenging to have a conversation.
1: Okay, good. So, but I mean, many things obviously have happened in the meantime, and it's besides your $95 million dollar raise recently, so, but I mean, it all went, I feel like since July, August last year, everything was accelerated, like. There's no tomorrow in this industry or ecosystem. So maybe we just start. How was your last year so far?
0: (laughs) The last year has been, um, you know, incredibly intense, challenging, wonderful. It's been a a lot of different things. It was my birthday a couple of weeks ago, um, and I had a chance to reflect On the past year, you know, around my birthday. And I came to a place of actually great gratitude for what's happened with COVID. Um, You know, if I think about what has been really meaningful in my life since last year, it's not that. COVID made it happen, but COVID enabled a lot of the conversations that I probably wouldn't have had or been too distracted to have. It brought up a lot of my issues, you know, if you think about psychedelics and how they work and forcing you to confront your issues. COVID was very psychedelic in that respect in many ways for a lot of people as well mm-hmm. and, and it certainly was for me. Um and and so yeah, it's it's just been a whirlwind from the terror and fright of the beginning of the pandemic to uh, the adjustment to it to having field trip go from you know even a year ago when we first spoke really just an idea not much more than that and a, and a team to you know a functioning business we're already north of a hundred employees um, our drug development program is going well we've launched trip you know so much has happened and it's hard to believe that it's been a year to be quite honest um, it, it really almost baffles me every time i think about just how quickly it's gone by
1: and i mean besides the growth um what would you say is like is like the biggest change that you have experienced in yourself as i mean when you say that it used to be like an idea with a a little structure around it and now it's suddenly like a a network of clinics. Uh, I mean, very soon, once people can actually go to clinics again on a regular basis, it's going to be like, I don't know, probably even more clinics that you open. So what would you say is the main thing that also has changed in terms of your perception of, let's say, at this point, the ketamine treatment? I mean, now, since it's kind of a, you don't want to say like a mass production, but I mean, it, could be that it's becoming very fast like a very normal thing to do.
0: Yeah, I don't think I would go that far. Um certainly psychedelics and the conversations around psychedelics have become much more mainstream. You know, it's hard to have a conversation when people ask what I do and I tell them, you know, what we're doing with psychedelics. People are very up to speed, at least the people in my network, which Granted, is not necessarily a subset of the broader population, but, you know, it, it is quite interesting just to see how broad psychedelics have become. Ketamine, though, as ketamine-assisted therapy, I don't think it's become quite mainstream. I think adoption would probably be a bit higher than it is, but, you know, costs are still a challenge. You know, that's probably one of the biggest challenges that we have to work through as a movement and an industry in psychedelics is, when you are doing these therapies and they require so many labor hours from highly qualified people, cost becomes something to consider. Um, and, and so certainly we're working on that within Field Trip. We're, we're launching new programs, including group therapy programs, really all focused on trying to make it more and more accessible. So the bar isn't so high, at least until insurance coverage comes around. You know, there's just not a lot of not a lot of insurance coverage for ketamine assisted therapies right now. There is some. Most people are able to get reimbursement of part of the cost, uh, Mm -hmm. but it's still a significant out-of-pocket expense. And, you know, when you're dealing with people who have treatment-resistant depression or other treatment-resistant mental health conditions, they're naturally suspect, right? They've tried everything, and that's why they're coming to field trip now. Not exclusively, but, you know, and so to ask them to to spend not an insignificant amount of money. You know, it ranges from about $2,000 to about $6,000 for a course of treatment, depending on the path uh, that that you're on. It's still a lot of money if nothing else has worked. And to like take a a leap of faith on this new treatment, which you know, stay safe and and does work extremely well for most people. But if you've tried everything else, I I get why people would be somewhat suspect and and a little bit hesitant to commit to such a significant expense. So I think that's one of the things that's, you know, our our growth is pretty consistent with what we've modeled. So I won't say it's been a challenge, Um, but I think that deep down there was a kind of a hope that it would go much, much, much faster than, than we were budgeting for.
1: I know that the spray also, this Pravado spray, you could only get if you had, I think, tested or, or tried, like, I think, three antidepressants before you would be able to, to get it via a prescription or at least a couple of variations. But, I mean, I think this is really, I'm not going to say cruel, but what if you don't want to do that? If you don't want to be forced, let's say, to go through a couple of antidepressants before i mean honestly i started ketamine therapy last year because i couldn't go to the netherlands because of the traveling thing and i mean i'm not saying i would have had to take antidepressants thankfully i never had to do that but i mean if i imagined i would have first go through the process of maybe taking a horrible antidepressant for a year This is something that's, I really think a lot about this, what could be done to really accelerate the idea that people can just go straight to ketamine therapy.
0: It's a real question, and it's a question you know we experienced when we were very active in the cannabis industry, right? You know, one of our yeah, medical advisors, Dr. John Hanlon, um, who is an anesthesiologist and who uh, is the inaugural director of the pain management program at the University of Toronto Medical School, used to go and give talks to physicians about cannabis, which was always a third-line agent, a second or a third-line agent. So very much like ketamine, you had to try something else before cannabis was appropriately considered as as a medicine in Canada, at least in Ontario. And he's like, does this make any sense? Like the alternative is opioids, which we know don't work for a long time and have a high risk of death. Mm -hmm. Cannabis, we don't have as much evidence of its efficacy, but we know that there's very little risk associated with it. Like, aren't we stacking it the wrong way? Aren't we putting, you know, the dangerous stuff up front and the safer stuff up back? Shouldn't it be reversed? Uh, And I think it was an argument that held a lot of weight with people. And Certainly, we see it uh, in in psychedelics as well. Like, why should ketamine assisted therapy be a second or third line agent? Like, why can't you go to the thing that may actually work very effectively on on a much more holistic basis from the get go? And it comes back to a conversation, and, you know, Dr. Michael Verbora, who's our medical director at Field Trip for Canada, and I just did a podcast, our podcast, talking about this, about the paternalistic nature of medicine, which is, it's really been framed in doctor knows best and doctor relies only on the evidence that's put forward. Typically, that's been provided by the drug companies that are sponsoring the trials that make the evidence that the doctor relies on. And I don't want to be too critical of that because that's the foundation of most allopathic medicine, which by and large has been pretty successful over the last 50 years. But on the flip side, it does lead to perverse and less than ideal outcomes, right? And while I respect individual autonomy to make decisions for themselves. There's also going to be a balance against doctors being the informed and qualified people. But where does the balance between my personal autonomy, my personal preferences and, you know, my doctor and, and evidence get balanced. And I don't have a perfect answer for it. I don't know that there is a perfect answer, but I certainly believe that what's happening with psychedelics, which is so focused on, the agency of the person receiving treatment as a participant in the overall therapy is going to drive a revisitation of that narrative and, and create more of a balance away from doctor knows best to it being a really meaningful and thoughtful conversation between doctor and patient to figure out what the best approach is. But yeah, it's frustrating that you can't just go to the therapy that you want to. Um, And I, I totally respect that.
1: Yeah, so I mean, it's, um, there are two clinics, I mean, a clinic, it's exaggerated practices here where you, I mean, you can do that and then you would have to figure out the reimbursement, but at least you wouldn't do something illegal. So that's already a progress. But I mean, um, yeah, I think for a lot of people, this, um, this would be a really big relief if they could just go straight straight to other modalities. Yeah. I looked at your, um, I mean, as you already said, like the board has become bigger, the team has become bigger. And I just saw also you have a former head of Bayer's Pharmaceutical Division, Mr. a German guy, Dieter yeah. Weiner. Yeah. <laughs> so it's <laughs> so all these German pharmaceutical guys, <laughs> suddenly it all seems
0: over Seems to this. me the Germans and the Canadians <laughs> who are really quite prevalent in this <laughs> yeah. industry.
1: I have to say, it's totally my impression too, but would you say, I mean, one could think from just taking a look at your new setup that it actually is on the way to become rather a biotech company than let's say a a service company to help treating people? Because I mean, it it could make sense to move in that direction to produce your ketamine and then bring it to clinics. So is this a plan that you're having?
0: Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's always been part of the plan that we would be an integrated company because from the get-go, we realized both from a business perspective and a therapeutic perspective, if you're focused only on the delivery of treatment and not necessarily the development of new treatments, you're really leaving a, an essential part of the equation to third parties to chance and, and vice versa. If you're only focused on the drug development side of things and the new product development side of things, and you're not deeply integrated into the administration and delivery, because we know set setting and the therapy that supports the psychedelic experience is so critical to the outcomes... You really are leaving a huge part of the equation to the unknown, you know, not only for the outcomes, but also for your business model. And so Mm. what you've seen over the last year is not so much us becoming a biotech company, more it's just the maturity of our drug development side, the R&D side of our business coming into itself. Um, you know, certainly there seems to be a lot of excitement and interest from an investment perspective on what we're doing on the drug development side of things. You know, in the roadshow that led up to this current financing, uh, one of the investors described our drug development strategy as the best thing they've seen all year or they will see this year. So, you know, there's a lot of excitement around that. But at the same time, people are starting to appreciate the importance and the nature of this integrated model. Um, And so we really stand as an integrated company. I think it's important to us from a business perspective. I think it's important to us from a therapeutic perspective. I think it's important to us from a philosophical perspective, which is, you know, touching on all of the points we talked about about why not go directly to ketamine therapy. There's a broader conversation that has to happen. And by being an integrated company that focuses both on R&D as well as delivery, we're uniquely situated to push that conversation forward and really practice what we preach in as much as possible in terms of access and patient choice and and autonomy and and all that kind of stuff. Now, there are restrictions on that, for sure. We still have to play by some degree of the regulatory environment in which we live. But I think we're really have a can come from a strong position of thoughtfulness uh, when it comes to engaging in that conversation. So that's just a long way of saying, no, we're not becoming exclusively a biotech company. What you see is just uh, (laughs) what we Mm -hmm. always said we would do coming a little bit more present.
1: Okay. I want to talk though about the places or the the clinics. I mean, it's interesting that a lot of articles about these, let's say, ketamine clinics have appeared in mostly in lifestyle press, I feel in the last couple of like in Vogue and Elle magazine. So, and I mean, like there was one description, like, uh, was it put the wing, a Manhattan therapy office and a yoga studio in a blender and you'll get the vibe. And it's like, Really? Is this what these people think of if they walk into a Kettleman clinic? Which is, I mean, it can be something good because it's kind of destigmatized. It's like, where's the balance between, let's say, like a medical surrounding and a kind of over-the-top stylish Soho house, you could say?
0: Yeah, it's it's a good question. And I think the truth is it, it really depends on individual preferences. You know, at the end of the day, using ben's analogy of of psychedelic therapies kind of being like hygiene it's no different than going to the gym which is kind of like physical hygiene in some respects right and people like sure. going to nice gyms or they may prefer to go to the bare bones very cheap gym depending on you know what their their preferences are and, and so I think that's a I think psychedelics are well poised to be able to offer that kind of solution, that it really depends on what you want. It's still rooted in the belief that medicine should be sober, cautious, and composed. And I don't know why that is. Like, why should the experience of medicine or healthcare be so? Sober and somber. It just doesn't need to be, as far as I'm concerned. In fact, it's probably contrary to the ultimate outcomes of what we want, right? Um, I was having a conversation with uh, with Mendel Kalin from Wave Paths yesterday, and we were ta- right. talking mm-hmm. about like mm-hmm. how the placebo effect is so diminished in modern Western society. Of oh, it performed no better than placebo, but it's like. Wait a second. The placebo basically shows that we have the capacity as humans to cure ourselves or heal ourselves just with our minds. Why are we not fascinated by that fact? Why aren't we leaning into creating more placebo effect? You know, it's wonderful. Like, wouldn't it be better if you could get over your depression just by believing that you took a really powerful drug instead of taking a powerful drug? Like, that's awesome. And so, you know, again, it's part of the philosophy that we're trying to bring forward with Field Trip, which is let's rethink what we hold as foundations as medicine of medicine. It's not to say we should cast everything out. It's not saying we should dump everything on its head. But why not ask the questions of why can't medicine be a very pleasurable, positive, rewarding experience as well as one that's meaningfully improving to your overall health? And so... Going back to your question of where the balance is, is it's really where everybody wants it to be. But what doesn't exist right now, by and large, is medicine that makes you feel good to be alive as well as delivering good medicine. It mostly makes you not pleasant and uncomfortable while getting good medicine. So we're, you know, it's just one of those things we can re-examine through this whole exercise with, with psychedelics.
1: The famous moss wall in <laughs> your clinics. If the, if the surrounding is too clinical, then I'm not sure if this is also such a good idea, right? If it's like too antiseptic and like so almost that you would feel like you would be in a psychiatry and even the thought that you would have to go to a place where the psychiatry also is, it immediately would put you into a totally different, something's wrong with me, like perception about yourself i think is this something in the future something like an architect for psychedelic spaces i mean which I think must exist already, right? For new places. Do you guys look into things like that? Do you think about like creating specific rooms, specific surroundings, music? You just mentioned Mendel. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things that that we're focused on. And, you know, I think one of the things strategically that we're going to be able to do because we're focused on building such a big footprint and because we are very much a data forward organization, we're going to be collecting as much Mm -hmm. data as we can on you know, our settings, on the music, on the lighting, on the weather, on the preparation, on the type of therapy. And we're going to really try to get very buckled up on knowing that uh, you know, a green light versus a red light in a room can lead to different therapeutic outcomes for different people or this music or that music and, and all that kind of stuff. So while we've tried to build our clinics to be what we think is going to lead to great therapeutic outcomes. Uh, we're very much focused on actually testing those assumptions and, and seeing what works. And, and based on the data, we can start to build the locations that are going to become, I think, the de facto norm of, of what the future of psychedelic medicine looks like.
1: Okay. Last time in our conversation, I thought it was really interesting that we talked a lot about the language around kind of let's say mental health it's like and I remember like you said which I really thought was a such a great thing to say that the expression of somebody is crazy should basically disappear or should be kind of not part of a description anymore with somebody maybe dealing with a mental health issue because as we realized everybody of us last year (laughs) has become crazy (laughs) or at least moments of craziness. It's funny because today I saw a video of Demi Lovato where she really, the video is, I mean, I not know the the song anymore, but it's really like her showing herself how she overdosed in the hospital with all the medical stuff in her face. And basically the song is really just saying, um, yeah, I think I can handle my addiction, but I can't. And I was like, wow, is this just an impression or has this since a year increased that there's a total openness suddenly about this? I
0: think certainly there's a, an openness about this. You know, I think, I mean, certainly the pandemic has enabled all of us to embrace our own inner weird, right? Like when you don't see other people, when you don't leave the house and you're only, for many people, just this yeah. view, uh, you have a lot more liberty, right? Like uh-huh. it's it's always about what, you know, what do people do when people aren't looking? Um and I think all of us had a lot of time to like indulge in that and and we 've been pushed by virtue of life circumstances over the last year to understand ourselves better and what matters to us and and you know I, for some people it 's been a very positive and healthy experience for other people it 's been a very traumatic and challenging experience um, but it 's been a learning experience for all of us and I think what will come out of Uh, This for everybody is an appreciation for life and appreciation for those people around you. You know, we've all collectively experienced something very similar over the last year. And so I think there's going to be a level of compassion that comes out of that. And, you know, I think the psychedelic conversation is helping it. I think a lot of things are just transpiring right now that are making it okay to not be okay. Or I think more accurately, making it okay to just be who you are, where you are, um, and have compassion for it, I, I probably mentioned this quote from Tom Robbins, but you know he says there 's no such thing as a weird person. Some people just need more understanding, and yeah, uh, you know I exactly. think more and more we 're getting to that place um, uh, ironically, I find like within the psychedelic community. That's true to an extent, but it's also very not true to an extent that, you know, there's a certain level of rules you have to play by if you're going to be part of the psychedelic community. And if you don't adopt them, then you're a pariah. Uh, And I've truthfully found that challenging to navigate because it seems entirely inconsistent with what I think the value of psychedelic therapies are supposed to breed. But you know, well, I'm also trying to be compassionate about it and being like, what's what's driving that perspective? Why are people so, so afraid and so resistant to change and and trying to lean into that? So instead of judging, I understand, you know, with greater depth what's going on.
1: Can you name one of these rules that you feel that's a rule what you have to apply or that what you should engage and something.
0: I presented at a conference um, last year and someone called me uh, to warn me that someone on the panel with me worked for this company and, you know, I shouldn't trust them and uh, I should be very careful and I should think about not being on the panel at all. Um, mm. And, you know, it just, I appreciate the concern she was expressing. I do believe, you know, in part it was, trying to act in what she thinks to be the best interests of, you know, field trip and myself, I think part of it was fueled by previous experiences and and probably having a bit of a vendetta, but it just kind of surprised me being like, why aren't we open-minded? And so, you know, even though I've been criticized by some people on social media for certain views that I've held. You know, I've tried, I haven't been perfect, but I have generally tried to reach out to them and say like, hey, what's going on here? Why are we having this conversation? Why do you take this perspective? Why are you seemingly attacking me? And I've had some very insightful conversations with people. And out of those conversations, a I developed a healthy and, and good amount of respect for them, which is they have fair perspectives. I may disagree with it, but it doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means we see the world differently. But what also came out of that is that like bridge of compassion and understanding of knowing that even though it feels like it may be a cheap shot or unfair they're generally motivated by the same things i'm motivated by for trying to create a better world for trying to go about it a certain way and i may not agree with the approach but it gave me a much greater respect for what they're doing and that we're actually all in this together and um, we're just going about it different ways and, and so um So yeah, so that's just like an example, one instance of it, you know, another one, for example, was, you know, something that was said in a podcast, got reported in a psychedelic newsletter and it was taken out of context, right? And it made me look bad and that's fine. I mean, if you want to make judgment on me for that perspective, I don't know that you should be judging people, but be that as it may, if you want to take that perspective, at least give me the opportunity to clarify what was intended um, instead of publishing a newsletter about it without actually getting my side of the story. It's just these things where it's just like, I would expect more of people who profess to be, you know, so self-aware through their work with psychedelics that kind of stuff. That's where I see those instances happening. But I think we're all moving, right? I think we're all kind of coming together that the ultra-capitalists are becoming more psychedelically inclined and you know the most psychedelically inclined are becoming more receptive to the for-profit businesses because as we get to know each other you know there's like oh you know these people aren't evil they're not demons they're not trying to destroy things. they're just trying to do things or coming at things from a different perspective
1: it's very easy that people start saying good guys and bad guys and um, like less conversation around things so my feeling is that was really different around a year ago. But I mean, I also feel that this is not like a stagnant situation. Oh, yeah. People just get in touch and suddenly with people like that you just described. And I think it's also because it's the most interesting thing that is happening on the planet right now. I mean, of course, because we're in it, but still, even yeah. without that, it's just like if you really think also a lot of things through that are not only related to mental health treatments, but also to political decisions people might make or ceos undergoing treatments like that and making completely like not psychedelic ceos but other from other companies which has happened last year a lot and, and we had this one uh, coach on a podcast who actually told us that um like when the pandemic really hit and it was really clear that you couldn't go on like did before. So a lot of people uh, like CEOs called him and were like, okay, I need new ideas. Where do I get them from? So I need to come on a psychedelic journey with you. So you're also getting involved in a psilocybin production, was it in, in Jamaica where you start to work around the next topic after ketamine? So maybe you can talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. So within our clinics, we're going to be molecule agnostic. So whether it's psilocybin, ketamine, FT-104, which is our molecule in development, MDMA, you know, from a clinical application perspective, whatever's in the best interest of the person seeking treatment is what we'll work with. So we're going to be agnostic from that perspective. But um, from an R&D perspective, One of the first things we actually did as a company was to invest in a partnership with University of West Indies uh, to do work on cultivation and research around psilocybin producing mushrooms themselves as opposed to synthetic forms. Part of that was informed by our experience in the cannabis industry, where it seems more and more to be accepted that there's an entourage effect that whole plant. Cannabis seems to be more effective than synthetics or isolated cannabinoids. Um, And so we kind of posited that you may see the same thing. with mushrooms And, and now there's more and more evidence to suggest that there is an entourage effect in mushrooms whether it leads to clinically significant changes in therapeutic outcomes or experience that's to be determined but you can kind of get the sense that there's something going on within the mushrooms because for all the different species and different varieties of mushrooms out there they have different experience at least anecdotally you know one particular mushroom or form is known to be stronger or you know more colorful or anything along those lines which You know, there's some truth to that, probably. And if there is truth to it, there's going to be a chemical reason for it. So trying to get an understanding of that, we thought something to be of a significant interest, uh, not necessarily from a production perspective of a commercialization perspective. But when we were starting out in 2000, late 2018 and trying to figure out where the opportunities were, that was one of the areas of opportunities we identified very early on. Um, and, and so that's why we invested in that partnership. The news that came out recently about the opening of our dedicated research center there was really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of that. You know, there had been a lot of work going on for years. We've been doing that cultivation work since the beginning of 2020. Uh, So it's not actually new. It it was just sort of become, again, much like our Mm R&D work on FT-104, just became more present for people to see. But the thinking is that, and I fully expect what we'll see is, Right now, there's two kind of systems emerging. There's a purely medical system with synthetic forms that people are seeking FDA or EMA or Health Canada approval for. And then you've got this wellness kind of environment like was passed in Oregon, um, like we see being proposed to some degree in California and Florida and other states that'll probably rely much more on the natural products. So we wanted to be in a position where... We, we could speak and participate in the natural products as, as much as the medical side of things and so really focused on developing a library of genetics, cultivation techniques, all that kind of stuff. Because at the end of the day, I'm not sure which is going to be the dominant form uh, of psychedelic medicine whether it's going to be purely medical or, or more wellness based and you know, if you look to cannabis by way of analogy, I know there's a lot of excitement around the fact that GW Pharma, uh, which makes Epidiolex, which is CBD and THC for the treatment of epilepsy, just sold for seven billion dollars to Jazz Pharmaceuticals, and what a great success of you know taking yeah. uh, the pharmaceutical approach to plant medicine and all that kind of stuff. But then you turn around and you look at Canopy Growth Corporation, which is focused just on cannabis for adult use and medical purposes, uh, and they're worth $20 billion. And so, you know, I'm not sure that the biotech path is necessarily... Uh, going to be the biggest path. It probably will if I had to make a bet that's where I'd land on it, but it's not certain. Um, And so from a business perspective, as well as a research perspective, we wanted to also be well positioned to thrive in a more natural products driven environment.
1: You said that in one interview I just saw on, on YouTube, that it doesn't have to be, let's say medical, but it has to be professional. Like, I mean, the Oregon model is a little bit like that. But I mean, still so for this thing being professional, then, I mean, it seems that there need to be like 10 million therapists needed right now. I mean, leading up to probably, I don't know, 500 <laughs> million therapists. <laughs> So how do you think the therapist question will resolve eventually? Because it's obviously something that is so crucial, even if it's not medical, it seems that there's something to have, like, say, a successful treatment that doesn't end in strange trips or like repercussions after your experience. So it really seems that a therapist who knows, like a psychedelic therapist is a very necessary thing.
0: Yeah, I think so. Again, I think we just have to look at at people's preferences by and large. You know, I'm not at the point where I think there should just be broad-based access for psychedelics, you take it home and you do it themselves. I may get there, but I feel like it's just like a high yeah. risk unnecessary approach right now, given the stigmas that we're trying to overcome. But I'm also not of the view that you need to have a, you know, master's level or PhD level therapist take you through an experience. But it's kind of like the analogy I was thinking about as you were kind of going through that is like rock climbing. It's like you don't need an engineer to help you like figure out a path to climb up the side of a, a cliff face probably a good idea, you know, an experienced mm-hmm. engineer who knows, knows rock climbing, you're probably going to have the best and safest experience. But someone who's done that face a lot of times is probably going to offer a good and safe experience. Maybe not the best one, maybe not the therapeutic one, but a lot better than you're just trying to figure it out by yourself, right? And so I think there's plenty of scope for all of that to be included, that if you're looking for truly therapeutic medical need, You know, there's certain qualifications and education degrees and credentials. And if you're looking just to have a good and safe experience, then maybe it's enough just to be extremely qualified and gone through a lot on your own as well. I don't have an answer, but I see that there is flexibility and fluidity. And and I think we should be open-minded to all of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems also that, let's say, a younger generation, for example, the one that double-blind caters to so well, they already have a very different understanding of, it. I mean, I don't want to say using psychedelics, but just getting to know psychedelics, I would say. And I mean, there was this tweet, I, f- I forgot who it was. Three people sent it to me from some guy saying, um, I see a lot of my friends moving away from caffeine, nicotine and alcohol, moving towards cannabis and psychedelics because they don't, obviously don't want to use their parents' drugs anymore. <laughs> so, but I mean, this is so interesting because it's exactly what's happening. Like so many substances, like even you could say even like milk or meat is kind of disappearing in an interesting mm. way, like real milk, like cow milk and other things are also real milk. But like, you know what I mean? Like this whole transition to a whole new culture of substances might, might just happen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's incumbent upon every generation to try and challenge some of the assumptions and cultural dynamics of their parents and grandparents generation. I think we're probably seeing a bigger. Well, actually, I'm not even sure about that. I'm going to go off the deep end on a little bit of philosophy, but like when you look at our parents' generation, and I don't know exactly how old you are, but I'm guessing we're in the same rough category uh, that our parents were products yeah. of the you know, <laughs> post-war generation. They were probably the first kids to ever have a true teenage experience you know prior to that when you turned 17 you were basically working maybe even younger so you know there was and and that was the first dalliance with psychedelics that happened right after you know psychedelics and and this first era of teenagers uh, happened and if you look at the initial 1960s you know it was was 19 year olds and 20 year olds by and large like leading this this cultural movement Um, and you know I think I would put myself in the next generation and probably you as well, uh, where like there was some pushback against it. It it got less flowery and actually became pretty dark with the kind of grunge movements and nirvana and and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And then you see like this generation kind of pushing back against that, embracing some of the ideals of the 1960s, but I think in a much more informed and grounded way than what happened in the 60s because they've had the benefit of that time. They've had the benefit of us going through our own... Kind of analysis and assessment of, of what happened with psychedelics in the 60s. And so I think the move to California sober is not only not surprising, I think there's a lot of merit to it. Like we, we, we know that alcohol is really bad for you. You know, we know that milk is somewhere in the middle and beef is somewhere in the middle. It's, you know, not necessarily all good or not necessarily all bad, but alcohol pretty much is generally speaking all bad except for being very fun. Whereas with cannabis and psychedelics, it's like they skew more onto being like, yeah, they're probably pretty good for you, you know, and the risks associated with them are fairly limited, not non existent And it's like, OK, cool. And I think that's awesome. And I think it, it is, to your point, going to change how, you know, when the current 19 and 20 year olds like I'm locked out of my house for right now come to be, you know, in their mid 30s, early 40s, all that kind of stuff. The attitudes they take towards it will probably be much more open-minded, and you won't need such a regimented and strict approach like like is is being adopted right now.
1: It's funny you say the California sober because it's exactly what Demi Levato was talking about <laughs> <laughs> at the yeah. Joe Rogan show when she said, like you know, these green plants, and they were just laughing really hard. At <laughs> when she explained what California sober is like another great expression. But I mean, um, before we wrap it up, so could you talk about your plans outside America? I mean, in Europe, you will open a retreat in in Amsterdam. Is is this in the making or is this, how is this looking at the moment?
0: Yeah, it's not a retreat. Um, I mean, it depends on how you define a retreat, but it's really designed to be, more clinical in nature. I don't like using the word clinics because that imports a certain narrative of what's going on, but it's really designed to be much more consistent with what we're doing in North America than say a two or three day retreat, like you might get with synthesis. Um, so much Mm -hmm. more episodic, less, less, you know, less, um, less commitment, like it probably less overall cost, but you know, it's, it's the same protocols that we're using in North America, which is, there's going to be a psychiatric screening before you become a patient. There'll be, you know, medical assessments. You'll be working with professional therapists all along. So just uh, focused on doing it in a little bit more of a traditional context than most traditional medical contexts than most retreats would operate in. But yeah, we're opening in Amsterdam. I think opening day is, Sometime in the next couple of weeks, uh, and I'm, I'm oh, really wow. excited. It's okay. going to be cool, you know. And, and because it's a different medical paradigm uh, in, in the Netherlands around psilocybin truffles and, yeah. and how they can yeah. be used, you know, we're doing some innovative things. You know, working with couples therapy and um, different treatment protocols, which may not be well suited to a, a more restrictive you know, US or Canadian medical system uh, associated with it. So very excited about it for sure.
1: Thank you for being on the show. It was amazing as always. I mean, last year was a very interesting conversation we had already. So thank you for talking to me from your amazing hammock (laughs) (laughs) on this beautiful day in Canada. So Thank thank you so much.
0: It's, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for putting up with the, the bird sounds and the, the wind sounds. The birds, are fine. Um, I, hope, I, I hope they offer a, a very holistic, naturalistic dynamic to this conversation, much like you would expect exactly. to see in a field trip health location um, near you. Uh, but Perfect. it's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's, it's been great to chat.
1: Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club show. And please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, of course. There's also a New Health Club now. Or even better, sign up to our newsletter on thenewhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon.